So this is a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Thanks, Graham. Let's, uh, let's pray as we dig into Psalm 8. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, uh, that you are majestic and glorious uh, and that you have set your glory in the heavens. And uh, Lord, we ask that as we reflect now on that truth and on these profound truths in, uh, in this psalm and this song and this prayer, Lord, that we... Uh, would understand and see your glory, that you would press that truth deep onto our hearts uh, and that we would marvel at who you are and who we are in, uh, in relationship to you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. <clears throat> well, who are we? Uh, who are we as human beings and what does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to be uh, a human being? Those are important questions, I think. Uh, and there are other questions that are sort of uh, bound up with that or explanations that people give as to who we are and, uh, and what it means to be human. Uh, are we here simply, for instance, by chance? Is our universe, uh, the seven trillion, trillion, trillionth uh, possible universe, attempted a universe and the only one that worked out? Uh, and if so, if it is just by chance, is there any discernible purpose to our existence? Are we just chemical-based uh, computers, kind of executing a pre-written uh, code, a pre-written program determined by the laws of physics and biology and chemistry? Or do we really think and feel and decide? Do we really do those things, or is that just an illusion? We live in a massive universe. What possible significance do we have in that? We're just a speck within a speck within a speck. The astrophysicist Neil Tyson has written, the atoms of our bodies are traceable to stars that manufactured them in their cores and exploded these enriched ingredients across our galaxy billions of years ago. For this reason, we are biologically connected to every other living thing in the world. We are chemically connected to all molecules on Earth and we are atomically connected to all atoms in the universe. We are not figuratively but literally stardust. Is that it? Is that where our meaning and our significance comes from? 
Is our meaning found in that we share the same chemical composition as giant balls of gas that exploded on the far reaches of the universe? How is that helpful in thinking about who we are? Well, the Bible gives different answers to those questions, and I think the the answers that the Bible gives are deeply satisfying answers. They are answers that are satisfying uh, intellectually, that is, they make sense of who we are, they make sense of what we experience uh, and the world that we see around us, and they're also emotionally satisfying. Uh, We we feel uh, the satisfaction in them. And Psalm 8 is a psalm which helps us to grasp the picture that the Bible gives us of who we are within this giant cosmos. This psalm tells us uh, who we are, but it does that actually by telling us who God is and who we are in relationship to God. So the psalm begins by reflecting on the majesty of God. Verse 1, Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, David comes back to that idea at the end of the psalm. He repeats it there again. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But his point is that God's name, uh, God's uh, name is, is honoured uh, throughout the whole earth. Not because uh, people are giving him honour, not primarily because of that, but because God's honour is evident in the world. So look at the end of verse 1. You have set your glory in the heavens. That's how God's name is honoured uh, in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Uh, later in verse 3, David mentions again the works of God, God's fingers, that is the moon and the stars. They are things which display God's glory. God's glory and his majesty, David says, is on display every day in the world that we see. Uh, the poet Gerard uh, Manley Hopkins, uh, who I don't think wrote much uh, in the way of any good poetry, but he did write one good thing at least, and that is he said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God, it will flame out like shining from shook foil. It's this, uh, this, this idea that the world is charged, it's full of the glory and the grandeur of God. And I think as we look around uh, the world, as we look outside, uh, at this, particularly at this time of year, we see so easily the glory of God in everything that's around us. Uh, many plants are flowering or they're just finishing their flowering. There's a, a bottle brush plant next to my office window, just outside the window, and it's just uh, kind of, it's finished flowering. The flowers are kind of dying off. But a few months ago, not so long ago, it was resplendent, robed in these bright red flowers uh, that just kind of had this luminous, uh, that's indescribable. Uh, The other day I was, you know, it's not a particularly exciting thing to do, you would think, I was eating a nectarine, but I thought, it's just a seed, right? It's just, it's just, it's a part of a plant which is designed for it to repropagate. And yet, in God's wisdom, that seed is covered in this Extraordinary uh, flesh, which is not only edible and nutritious, but tasty and enjoyable. Extraordinary, isn't it? That God has made a world, the simple things that we take for granted are actually signs of God's majesty and honour and glory. Uh, Somewhat improbably, as you might know, I recently took up mountain biking. Um, Everybody says to me, I never thought you'd do that, Carl. Well, thank you you so much (laughs) for that vote of confidence. But... um, 
But, but one of the unexpected pleasures, I think, about doing that is that it gets you out into, into nature. Uh, I, never, I never liked the idea of riding on a road, and we can all see from what happened to Steve that that's not a great idea. <laughs> but it's pretty boring to go to kind of pavement after pavement, you know, asphalt after asphalt. But to ride through the, to ride through the forest is extraordinary. Um, in the middle of last year, I went with a friend, and we, and we rode... Uh, the Blue Tear uh, track out near, uh, out near Derby. It was the most awful day that you could imagine. You know, we were rugged up, you know, <laughs> as much as we could. It was rainy, it was overcast, but it was magical. There was one spot in the forest, which was just like something out of a, out of a Narnia novel or something like that, just this green, this, this green moss covering the ground and the plants and, and, and the trees, thick and lush, extraordinary uh, and even if you ride uh, as I do through the same forests you know sometimes a week after week uh, every change in season and even every different day brings some new discovery some new picture some new vista some new thing that you hadn't seen before uh, you often see uh, wallabies or echidnas, and whenever I see, the other day I almost ran over one, um, which wouldn't have been good for the tyres, but um, <laughs> all the echidna, of course. But it's, just, it's just wonderful to stop, and to, you know, and to, and to watch these creatures that God has made. Extraordinary uh, in their uniqueness uh, in which God has designed them. Uh, the other day I was out and I saw a, a, a flock of black cockatoos, fly past, uh, something I just never, I'd never seen in Tasmania before, actually. Uh, sometimes uh, I like to sit at the breakfast table in the morning and to watch the birds sitting in the trees uh, or on, on improbably thin branches. There's a tree next to my house which has these shoots that go up and they sway around in the wind and then this cockatoo or, or, uh, or whatever it is comes along, a white cockatoo, uh, whatever it is, comes along and sits on this branch and it just perches there. And I think, how is that even possible that this large bird could perch on this tiny kind of wafer-thin branch? And yet, that is the skill with which God has designed them. Every day, if we open our eyes to see, we see some new delight from our living uh, and wonderful God. And every night, too, brings new delights. Sometimes it's wonderful just to open the curtain and to look out at the stars or to go outside and to stand in the driveway and just stare up at the night sky. I love to, uh, to, uh, to stand and to look at the full moon. It's extraordinary that this globe of light hanging in the middle of the sky. Extraordinary. And the lights that it sheds, merely a reflected light from the sun. All those things display the majesty and the splendor of God. Of course, secular rationalism has no explanation for why the world should be beautiful or why we should experience or appreciate beauty. It has no explanation for that other than the explanation of evolutionary drive. That is, the only reason that we appreciate beauty is because at some point in our history, recognizing beauty helped us to gain a competitive advantage. It's the ultimate capitalist uh, answer to, uh, to beauty. But that's a really soul-destroying explanation of beauty, isn't it? 
but the only reason we appreciate it is because it helped us to gain a competitive advantage. But the Bible's explanation of beauty and of our world is soul-satisfyingly good. The Bible says the, the world is beautiful because God made it to be beautiful and God made us to see its beauty and to see in it the echoes of his glory. In fact, David says, God's glory is so obvious in creation that even children and infants can see it. That's what verse 2 is about. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. It seems to me that what David is saying there is that God's glory is so obvious that even children can see it. And their acknowledgement silences the fools who oppose God by saying that he doesn't exist or that the world is not the result of his glory. And it seems to be true, I think, that you hardly need to work at all to convince a child of the glory of God or that God exists. It just seems transparently obvious to children that the world is created by God. It's only once we grow up that we acquire the intellectual sophistication to commit intellectual suicide by describing the majesty uh, of God to blind, ruthless and pitiless chance. And yet even then, we can't escape it. A fascinating study was published a number of years ago which showed the danger of creation to, sci to scientific rationalism. Uh, it found that showing people awe-inspiring nature documentaries made them more sceptical of the claims that science can explain our world as it is. Uh, it made atheists more open to believing that the world was ordered rather than random. And when you watch the documentaries or read the books of even some of the most hardline atheists, it's hard not to be struck at times by the almost hushed reverence with which they speak of the world which they describe by science. As Don Carson notes, it almost approaches a kind of worship. Listen to these words uh, from the famed naturalist Charles Darwin. He says, I wrote that while standing in the midst of the grandeur of a Brazilian forest, it is not possible to give an adequate idea of the higher feelings of wonder, admiration and devotion which fill and elevate the mind. I well remember my conviction that there is more in man than the mere breath of his body. And yet, startlingly, the reason he was mentioning that is because by the end of his life, those echoes of God's glory had been smudged out. He continues, but now the grandest scene would not cause any such convictions and feelings to rise in my mind. But while we can desensitize ourselves to the majesty of God around us, we can't eliminate it from creation. It is there. It is there to be seen. God's name is majestic in all the earth and his glory is in the heavens. So God's glory is there. We can see it. But then David takes his reflections in a kind of an unexpected direction. He says in verse 4, when I, do, when I consider that, when I consider the works, uh, uh, your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? David has begun by reflecting on the glory of God, but then as he does that, he's struck by something else. 
He says, if God is so magnificent and powerful and so far above us, then why should he care about human beings like you and me? Why should he care about us? Why should God think about us when he has this whole world to care about? But the incredible thing, David says, is that he does. God does care for us. You can imagine David standing there one night looking up at the stars, seeing how massive God's world is, how massive the universe is, and thinking to himself, God, why do you care about me? What is mankind that you care for them? The universe is big. It's really big, in case you didn't know. It's really big. They reckon it's 93 billion light years from one side to the other. That's a guess, you know. It's like they... They can only observe 10% of that and they have computer modelling to guess what the rest of it is. But still, okay, within the ballpark of 93 billion light years, that's a big, that's a big place, isn't it? And yet God cares about every individual human being despite that largeness. And the Bible is full of the testimony of God's love and his care for human beings. Listen to what Jesus says on one occasion. He says, he causes the father, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is so kind to all that he has made that he sends all that they need, both on those who acknowledge him and those who don't. But it's not just David's care for human beings that amazes him. It's also the dignity and the honour that God has created us to have. So he says in verse 5, You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. Just a little lower than the angels. That's the dignity. And crowned with glory and honour. In what way? Are we crowned with glory and honour? Well, Genesis tells us, the very beginning when God created human beings, Genesis tells us that God made us in his own image. He, He made no other creature in his own image, but he made us, men and women, in his own image to reflect him and to reflect his glory. That's what it means to be in God's image. It means to reflect him and to reflect his glory. One of the ways that we do that is by reflecting his creativity. So God made the world and he made us as sub-creators, if you like, under him. He made the world out of nothing and then we use what he's made in order to create and develop the world that he has made for us. When he made us, he gave us this commission, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. That is, God created the world But the extraordinary thing is then he handed it over to us for us to cultivate uh, and to develop. And we see that. We see those echoes of Eden. That dignity and our honour, that task that God gave to us, we see that still sounding out, ringing out throughout our world. Uh, The other day... um, Every year I, I help out at St. John's um, Church in town, the Anglican Church in town, with their Christmas Eve service uh, and, and play some music for them. Uh, and p- as part of that, one of, the, one of the guys that I know and I play with uh, played a solo, a trombone solo, uh, which you wouldn't maybe think was the greatest thing in the world, but he did. 
Uh, and it was just, I'd, 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 I'd actually never really heard, sat down and actually heard him play before. He's been playing for about 50 years. And it was just extraordinary. Uh, I, could, I could have wept. I thought of, um, I thought of Luther. Luther translated in the German Bible, uh, you know, and the trumpet shall sound. He translated, and the, the psalmate, and the trombone shall sound. And the Lord shall descend. And I thought, I bet that's what it's going to be like on the day, you know. It was extraordinary. There was this one moment. I don't know if you've ever been to St. John's and listened to the organ there, but there was this moment with the organ and swelled and the trombone sitting on top of it, and it, it just filled the space. You know, and sometimes trombones have a reputation for ripping the heads off people for playing too loud, but it wasn't like that. It was just this great swell of music as this moment of climax, and the sound just enveloped you. Just, it was just an extraordinary moment. It was, it was a wonderful gift. And I thought, I thought afterwards, there's, there's three things that are amazing about that. The first thing that's amazing is that we have the ability to build instruments like that. Incredible, isn't it? So the complexity of an organ, uh, the complexity of the, the, the system of notation and, uh, and harmonics, uh, I won't say the complexity of a trombone, it's probably one of the easiest instruments that you could possibly make. It's extraordinary that we, can, that we can build those things. It's extraordinary that we have the skill to play them. Incredible, isn't it? I was listening to the radio this morning, uh, Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto by James Ennis, a Canadian uh, violinist. Rapid, rapid movement, uh, up and down scales of all kinds of things. His intonation, the, the, the pitch, was just exact. Surely his fingers must have been going all up and down the strings, but the notes, the pitch of the notes, every single note, bang, straight on. Extraordinary, isn't it? Someone can actually do that. The third thing that's amazing is that people can write music like that. The piece of music was uh, Morton Lordson's uh, setting of uh, O Magnum Mysterium. I don't know if you've ever heard it. If you've never heard it, it's a choral piece of music, actually. Google it. It's just, it's, it's hauntingly beautiful. But those things, those gifts, are echoes of the honour and the dignity that God has created human beings to have. And it's not just music. I don't know if anyone watches Grand Designs. They're replaying it on ABC at the moment between six and seven. It's about the time when I'm making dinner, you know. Uh, and the other day they had an old episode on and there was a, there was a husband and wife team. It's always a, it seems to be a husband and wife team, doesn't it? And they always have a baby in the middle of the build. It's, uh, <laughs> you wonder what people are thinking, don't you? But anyway. But it was this house crafted from steam-bent timber. And when I say, I don't know if anyone saw it, when I say crafted, it literally was crafted. It was, it was an enormous piece of art. Every single piece of timber almost in the house seemed to have been bent by hand into the appropriate shape. They had literally mastered God's creation. Bent it to the shape of their creative vision. 
And it's not just art and music. We see it in some of the things that athletes are capable of. Uh, I think to watch what some, uh, some of the guys who play AFL footy can do with a football is just extraordinary. Every year, the, the mark of the year or the goal of the year seems to be better than the year of before. The skills that people have developed in sport have grown over the years. People are playing better than they were 30 years ago. God has given to us as human beings gifts and opportunities to master his world. We were made in his image. We were made to build and develop and cultivate the world that he made. But the image of God is more than that as well. Um, Verse 6 builds on that. He says, You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. That is, God not only gave us the task to cultivate and develop his world, but he gave us responsibility for it. So he created the world and then he said to human beings, and here you are, you take care of it. He entrusted us with responsibility for his whole world. God made us to be rulers of his world under him. And he created everything else in the world in such a way that it was to be subject to us. And we still see that, don't we? We still see the imprint of the way that God designed the world on the way that the world works. We have farmers who rear cattle. When was the last time you saw a cow, you know, kind of herding a bunch of people into another paddock? You know, or into the milking, whatever, shed at the beginning of the day. No, cows don't herd people, but we herd cattle. And we train dogs to help people, to help the blind or to help the elderly. We train birds. There are birds, apparently, at some of our major sporting grounds that are supposed to keep the pigeons away. I don't think they actually attack them. They just stand there and look menacing. I love that. You'd think they'd cotton on after a while, wouldn't you? It's like, he's not actually moving, he's just standing there. We, we, uh, during the Second World War, they, they trained pigeons to deliver messages across the English Channel. I don't know if you know, but there's a, there's a have you ever heard of the, um, the Animals Victoria Cross? The Dickon Medal. You know, if you watch, um, oh, what's that show where they sell antiques? What's that antique? Antiques Roadshow. Uh, you know, you see it come up in there. Oh, is that the Dickon Medal? Oh, I say, yes. Well, you do know the story behind the Dickon Medal, don't you? That they awarded uh, pigeons during the Second World War. And then, uh, and, then, and then at the end, you know, they say, what? And what is it worth? That's two pounds. <laughs> and you go, what? I just listened to this for 10 minutes, your explanation of the Dickon Medal. But, but they award it for conspicuous gallantry. I love it. There's some citations you can look up for Australian pigeons uh, that were awarded... You know, from the one, one Australian One Pigeon Regiment. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. But <laughs> the point is, the point is actually, uh, that, that we are able to use animals in the service uh, of the things uh, which we are trying to do. But it's not just that we get them to do what we want, uh, but we also care for them. Uh, and exercise responsibility for them. And as human beings, you often see that coming out, don't you? You see coming out of people this expression of this profound sense of responsibility for other creatures, for other animals, or, or, or or for forests and trees and plants as well. That we don't always see it, 
Uh, but we often see it, and that's an echo of the responsibility that God has pressed onto our hearts when he made humanity. We see people going to great lengths to rescue whales that have beached themselves, don't we? Uh, or or we, we take injured animals to wildlife sanctuaries, or we set up natural areas of habitat. We, we protect them in order to protect an entire species. We breed endangered species in captivity in order to make sure that they don't become extinct. It's strange that we work so hard to do that because evolutionary theory would suggest that we should let them all die. If it can't survive, then it should just adapt. In other words, but, 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 that's, but that's not the, the message, I should say, that the Bible gives us. The Bible says that we care about creation, we care about creatures because God made us to care. He gave us an incredible honour and dignity to be responsible for the world that he made. So David looks up at the heavens and he says, why, God, do you care about us? Why do I matter? The Bible says that you matter because God made you to matter. God made you with significance. To know him, to imitate him and reflect his glory. But there's a profound problem with that. The problem with the image of Psalm 8 is, of course, that we don't actually see that. We see echoes of it, but we don't see the full reality. God might have created us to have great dignity and responsibility, but not everything is as it should be. And in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews actually takes up this psalm and points out that very problem. If you've got your Bible there with you, turn to the New Testament, to the, to the back of the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 2 and to verse 6. And the writer there says, but there is a place, I love that, but there is a place, who knows where it is? We know it's Psalm 8, but he didn't know that. There is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, the son of man that you care for them? You made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned uh, crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. So the writer says... Here's Psalm 8, here's this great vision of Psalm 8 that God created us to rule over his creation for everything to be under our our feet. God didn't leave anything apart that was not under our rule and and care and yet he says in the end of verse 8, yet at present we don't see that. We don't see everything subject to humanity. We're supposed to rule and care for the flocks and the herds. But actually... They're pretty stubborn a lot of the time and they don't really listen. They escape from paddocks. What is it with cows that are escaping from paddocks? You just drive along the side of the road and there's, a, there's all the cows in the paddock and then there's another cow standing on the side of the road and you think, how did that cow get out there? Where did that cow come from? They just seem to have this way of just emerging from the other side of a fence. It's extraordinary. Or we come home and we tell the dog to get off the lounge. What are you doing on the lounge? 
and it just sits on the lounge and doesn't get off. Or we leave the cat at home and we come home and it's torn the lounge to shreds. Uh, early in the year, I was, uh, I was with some of the guys from Worldview and they were trying to get a pig out, the back of, out of the back of the ute. It must have taken about 10 minutes. I've never, I've nev- I have no experience with pigs. I just stood there watching and, and saying consolatory things like, oh gosh, that looks hard. Uh, but it's about like 10, 10 minutes for this pig to, to get out of, the, out of the back of the ute. It, I, I now understand why people call pigs stubborn. So we have these animals that we, we have a sense of responsibility. We care for them, but they don't listen to us. Uh, or, or we try and care for, for, say, wild animals, but then half the time they're trying to kill us. Uh, you know? In fact, the, sh- the shark issue is a, is a perfect example of what happens in that space. So people keep getting attacked by sharks, which is awful, and so people say, we've got to do something about this. And yet at the same time, everyone's saying, yes, but, but actually we care about them. We, we, we don't want to just kill them. We're, we're caught in this world, which is echoing the world that God made for us to live in, a world where we care and feel responsible for the world, but a world which is broken and which has been turned upside down, which is now trying to attack us and, and, and destroy us to some extent. We're supposed to be caring for birds, but they dive bomb us when we walk along through the park. Or they make nests in our gutters. Or they poo on the car after we just wash them. What is with that? And the problem is not just with them not listening to us, but worse still, I think, is that we don't take our responsibility as we ought. So we rule over animals brutally. We kill off entire species. We know that in Tasmania, don't we? We don't, there's no more Tasmanian tiger. We destroy their habitats. We run over them on the roads. What has gone wrong that the world has ended up like this? The problem is not that we tried to rule over the world. That was actually God's gift to us. God's gift to us was to have responsibility for the world. The problem is not that we tried to take that up. The problem is that we tried to rip the world and ourselves out from under God. So we tried to take the world that God had given us and to rule, on it, rule over it over here without him. Instead of ruling the world under God's authority and according to God's wisdom and God's design and plan, we tried to take the world and ourselves in our own direction and use our own wisdom and our own plan for the world. And we can all see day by day that that is not a particularly good plan for the world. The result is chaos. We fail to rule ourselves and we fail to rule over the world. We've rebelled against God. The consequence of that is death and we stand and the world stands under the judgment of God. You don't try and steal a universe from somebody without there being significant consequences. We stand under the judgment of God... And I think, actually, the rebellion of creation is God's object lesson to us. So just as we've rebelled against God and against his authority, everything that was supposed to be subject to us is now in rebellion against us. It's God's way of saying, just try and see how that works out for you. 
But that's not the end of the story, according to the writer of Hebrews. We don't see humanity in the place we were intended to have, but verse 9, we do see Jesus. We see Jesus, who has made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We don't see humanity in the place it was intended to have, but what we do see is Jesus. We see Jesus, the Son of God, who came into our world, who took on human flesh, who was made like us, a little lower than the angels, so that he might redeem and restore humanity in order to what it was supposed to be. He suffered death to free us from the death and the judgment that we deserve for our rebellion against God. And he took on our humanity in order to restore our humanity in a way that we never could. And so we see Jesus, the writer says, now crowned with glory. He's crowned with glory and honour because he's the pioneer of our salvation. He's won our salvation for us. But in the context of the psalm, the writer is saying that he's crowned with the glory and honour that humanity was supposed to always have. He's now crowned with the glory and honour that we had and lost and need to get back. He has reclaimed what we lost, but he has done that in order to share it with us. Verse 10, the writer goes on to say, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of salvation, their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's those who trust in Jesus, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. The point is that what Jesus did, he did in order to share. He came into our world, he took on all that was broken in us and he restored it so that he might share it with us. There's a story about the war twins. I don't know if you're young, I don't know, do people even know who Steve and Mark War are anymore? But you know, they're great cricketers. Uh, for, for Australia. Uh, and there's a story, I, I think it's true, but who knows, we'll just pretend that it's true. But the story goes that uh, when they were growing up in school cricket, I think, or in, uh, in their local club cricket, they were playing a game uh, for their team in which they opened the batting and they scored all the runs. Uh, you know, they used up all the overs, just the two of them, none of them got out, neither of them got out. And then they took all the wickets because they were, just, they were just way better than everybody else. And in a way, that's what Jesus has done. He's come into our team. He's become one of us. And he single-handedly won the game that we couldn't win. He stood in for us on the cross He's taken the penalty for our rebellion against God and he's reclaimed and remade in himself what was broken and destroyed in humanity by our rebellion against God. And he's done that in order to share it with us so that if we link up with him, if we join his team, then his win is our win and his victory is our victory. If you've linked up with Jesus, then all that Psalm 8 promises about humanity and what God intended it to be, all that belongs to you. We still, all of us in this world still have echoes of it. 
But if you belong to Jesus, if you're on his team, then one day, the day will come when that will be right again. And we'll all have the, the honesty, honor and the dignity that God created us to have. Well, David begins by marveling at God's majesty and creation. And then he marvels at God's care for human beings like you and me. But when we see what God has done in restoring what was lost through his own son, Jesus Christ, it takes all that to a whole other level. God's love and care for us in making us to be in his image is nothing compared to the honour and dignity that he has purchased for us in the death of his son. And so I think when we get to the end of that psalm, we say those words with a renewed significance, with a renewed understanding. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, we see it. And Father, we confess we don't always acknowledge it. We don't always ascribe it to you. And what a terrible sin that is to overlook your glory. But Lord, thank you that day by day you show us who you are, what you've done, your power, your majesty, your might. And Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes day by day to see that more clearly, to see that the world is charged with the grandeur of God, to see it in the plants and the trees and in the sky and the seasons and the moon and the stars and the plants and the animals, to see in everything that you've made, in human beings, to see your incredible glory and mercy. And Lord, to see in us, in how you have made us, the honour and the dignity that you have given to us. Lord, help us not to take that for granted. Help us not to think little of ourselves, but to see humanity as you see us, intended to reflect your glory. And yet, Lord, we grieve and we mourn because we're frustrated by the loss and the damage of the world in which we live. Lord, creation rebels against us as we have rebelled against you. And yet, Lord, you've promised to put that right in Jesus. You have begun to put that right in him. And Lord, we thank you for that. And we ask that you would help us to live every day with that hope of a world restored. Lord, we can see the echoes of the goodness of the world that you created. We ask that those echoes would grow in our hearts and that we would long day by day for those echoes to become a full reality. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.